Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 133. This episode of the podcast is with John Goodwin, Head of Academy Sports Science at Fulham FC. It was great to chat with John. He came on to talk about viewing football, physical preparation from a non-football background. We also spoke about how he thought football viewed him from a non-football background as well and his sort of first steps he took getting into the club. We spoke about some of the main issues and challenges that he faces in his role. We also spoke about, do we train our players hard enough? So that was a a discussion we had about, do we push our players hard enough? And then towards the end of the podcast, we also spoke about, for any available time we have in terms of speed development, where should we spend it in his point of view? And he spent some time in track and field, so it was great to get his views on where we should spend any available time that we have available with our players. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was really good to speak to John. I think this was the longest episode that we've done on the podcast so far, and I felt like there was loads more that we could have gone into as well. So let me know your feedback on the episode, because there's absolutely loads of information in this one. Just finally, before we go into the podcast, I just wanted to give a little heads up, because... Over the last few weeks, I've been working on an ebook based on return to play for players that have been out of the game, any level from amateur up to semi-professional, maybe even professional, um, on a six-week program. And the ebook is called Prepare to Play. And I've teamed up with Jordan Tyra, also known as the physical performance coach on this ebook. And we've created a six-week program based on running drills out on the pitch to prepare you or put you on the right step, right path to getting your football fitness back. So if you're interested in purchasing the ebook or you know someone that might be, they might play local football and they're wanting to get back into some sort of fitness, um, please pass them on the ebook. It'd be great to get this out to as many people as possible. We've um, got little graphics that go with the drills and it talks you through all the drills as well as what you're doing every day throughout the six weeks as well. You can go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab and the ebook will be in there called Prepare to Play and it is only £9.99. So it'd be great to get this out to as many players that are preparing to get back into the game as possible and it'll be great to also get feedback on how people find the six-week programme too. So, little heads up on the ebook, and I hope you enjoy this episode with John Goodwin. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 133. I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast today, John Goodwin. John, how are you? I'm very well, Ben. Good, good. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for asking. It's nice to be heard. I'm, I'm looking forward... I said when we uh, just got online a minute ago, that voice. Uh, I've been listening to quite a lot, quite a lot of your podcasts lately, and I just quite enjoy listening to your voice. You don't get a lot of it down south, so uh, it's yeah, it's a nice energy in the voice for a change. It's nice. I think you'll probably be the first and last person that ever says that, to be honest. Um, and the, the other thing with a lot of people down south not listening or or taking into anything that I say is probably do they can't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> get away with a lot yeah. yeah exactly could be saying anything um but no i really appreciate you coming on mate it's great it'll be great to have a chat we spoke obviously a few weeks ago 
I think we've got some really interesting topics to cover, especially anyone that's working within an academy or up to sort of 23s or even first team, to be honest, to understand what goes on in, in those sort of transitional years between academy and first team. And I've not mentioned your role. So your, your current role is head of academy sports science at, at Fulham. Yeah. Well, do you want to just take us back, John? Let's go through your journey, your career so far. Yeah. Um, I was a, uh, I was a track and field athlete, a bit multi-sport as a kid, but predominantly a track and field athlete. Um, and then that took me all the way through my teens and twenties, mostly focused on, on track and field. Uh, and actually I did my undergrad in sports rehab back in 95 to 98 and actually started coaching back then. So I always had a bit of a bent towards really enjoying the training environment and the coaching environment from pretty early on. Um, so yeah, I was a track and field coach going back then. And then after my undergrad, basically went straight in as a postgrad. So I was teaching biomechanics and anatomy and started a PhD, but I'm just very distracted as a person. So the PhD sort of petered out to nothing whilst I was just busy off spending most of my time coaching um around around my work role and then picked up an msc in biomedical engineering in 2005 six um and at that point the track and field coaching had turned into strength conditioning coaching because you get footballers and rugby players who come to you for speed coaching and then that come turns into solving more of those problems and became snc coaching so yeah by the mid 2000s i was pretty regularly S&C coaching um, and at that point the opportunity came up to validate an undergrad degree in strength conditioning um, and also at that similar sort of time I went onto the board of the UKSCA uh, and that sort of really cemented my direction fully immersed sort of in the strength conditioning environment at that point and then around all of that sort of from 2000 until about 2012 or so I was sort of trying to keep up with a full-time job lecturing in university, as well as what was pretty much full-time coaching. I was generally doing sort of like 20 to 30 contact hours a week of mm -hmm. coaching across the mixture of sort of track and field athletes, the TAS scheme. I don't know if you're familiar with the yeah. athlete scheme. Uh, we had an endurance performance, London Marathon Endurance Performance Centre at St. Mary's. So I was coaching or supporting some of that university teams, bits of consultancy work. And then I spent a ex little extended period with the Welsh women's lacrosse team, which is probably some of the most fun uh, coaching I've had being in that environment for a while. So picking up all of that coaching. And then as the undergrad degree I was running sort of evolved, loads of other universities almost within a year or two of ours starting like everyone must have had the similar idea at a similar time loads yeah. of other strength conditioning programs started to appear and then strength conditioning started to turn into fairly quickly turn into sports science mm. which is like masses of programs lots of students that want to study it but not really enough jobs um so at that point i decided to validate uh, a strength conditioning master's degree by distance learning which was designed to only take people who were already working in industry. So it was, it was designed for people who were in roles. Um, 
of some shape or form relating to strength conditioning in some cases personal training in some cases rehab but predominantly people working strength conditioning and giving them an opportunity to cpd rather than trying to have a master's program that would take graduating sports science people and turn them into strength conditioning coaches yeah um so that was our distance learning program that started in sort of like 2009 and then i was running that for a few years and then 2016 got the opportunity to go to saudi arabia so um i got contacted by a guy named roy heady who used to be at the rfu and british gymnastics but he was then sort of helping saudi basically set up something resembling an elite sports system um and he asked me to go out there and help set up the programs there so i was there from 2016 to 19 which was wow. like an amazing experience and just really different learning mm. really different tasks and outcomes we were trying to achieve and a different environment to work in so that was fantastic um and that came to an end in 2019 when i went moved back to the uk to Fulham basically came back almost home because Fulham's only sort of 20 minutes from St Mary's where I was based in the university system um yeah back to Fulham's academy as head of sports science and I've been there for the last two years wow my focus so the last five years really has been a massive learning curve because Saudi was a big learning experience and then coming to Fulham I came to Fulham really as a very really really a non-football person um, I'd wanted to get into academy football for quite a long time, had been trying to move sideways out of my role in, in sort of academics into football. But when you're not coaching full time, it's difficult for people to take the risk mm. on you. So um, that never, that never materialised. I was yeah trying to make that move for ages because really I just wanted to be in a coaching environment where you were dealing with a reasonably sized cohort of young athletes with a reasonable not perfect but a reasonable level of resource available yeah so you could actually try and implement the things you want to implement um so the opportunity to come back and do that yeah with fulham was yeah what i've been hoping to do for a long time i was going to ask that the, the sort of the long football guy. <laughs> <laughs> well we'll touch on that in a second because i yeah. think that's interesting but i was going to ask that about that attraction to get into football so is that the main thing you think in terms of like resource the, the size of the the squads or the groups or whatever you want to call them and, and then also the the resources that would potentially be available at the clubs yeah it's just yeah it's the opportunity to to take a group of hopefully relatively hungry young athletes yeah with resource and help them realize some things that maybe in other systems they wouldn't have had the opportunity to do try and do things differently or a little bit better um and, and help some athletes realize things in you know with a with your belief system and the vision that that you think you bring to the table um and i, I think it's a really exciting time to be in football because i think football's evolving really fast you've got generations of young coaches coming through the system who are really equipped in a very different way Mm. with different tools um, and that's really sort of livening things up and evolving the coaching environment um, you've also got sort of the longer establishment of the sort of sports science strength conditioning sector 
which means there's more and more better people and more and more resource as in jobs being made available for those people to be aligned to those systems and then also you've got more and more drift from other sports happening now so EIS has been around for sort of a decade and a half or so and you've also got sort of the influence that has on the sector generally but also the drift you start to get of expertise gradually people that have been really well developed in those environments and they start to drift across to football so you've got this real mix of exciting things happening in football I think that that mean sort of the this 10 years we're in is a really interesting period to see things evolve yeah I agree massively and the game's changing so much as well isn't it that that's why it's so it's essentially a new game isn't it like we look from a few years ago it's it's very very different and it'll probably evolve again over the next few years somehow it's a bit Um, chicken and egg yeah how much of that is some of those factors that I'm talking about and how much of that was coming anyway yeah these factors are helping you to sort of keep up yeah with yeah definitely like future proofing future proofing our athletes thinking where the game's going to go and what they're going to have to be equipped to be able to do in five or ten years time is yeah i, I guess is a, a driver around my belief system around pushing players harder in their development yeah which is really relevant in in your role and many of us out there isn't it working with these academy players um I was going to say, John, what, what was your initial sort of thoughts and views going into a football club in terms of physical preparation? So you've, you've referred to yourself as like the non-football yeah. guy from a non-football yeah, yeah, background. Yeah. So yeah. going from that background into football, what was the first sort of views and opinions? Yeah, uh, I'm non-football in every way. I <laughs> hadn't worked in football. I'd, I'd done little bits of consultancy around it, but not worked in football. And uh, I don't really, actually, it's not just football. I don't really watch sport. Mm. I'm not really that into watching or following sport. I'm really interested in dealing with athletes that are in front of me and helping them develop. So, yeah, I've really only started watching any football at all since my 11-year-old son started getting into football over the last couple of years. And that's dragged me into watching a bit of football otherwise I wouldn't really been watching any sport at all um I think I would caveat an answer to your question and going back to what you said earlier about the, sort of the overlap into first team is that where one thing I definitely really don't have good exposure to is a first team football environment and I have a sense about how first team football is run and the nature of the the type of sort of challenges and workload they're exposed to and and where their where their emphasis is and i definitely draw comparisons of what what my priorities are in academy against what i think first team football tends to have more of a focus on i draw comparisons but i don't do it with any real detailed knowledge because i haven't spent enough time with first team players to say well if you did it like this I think you'd get this outcome. So actually, if you did it like this, well, I say you might not get the outcome, I think, in the long term with mm. first team players, because I just don't really have enough time with them to understand well the types of the nature of the stresses they're exposed to or the pressure of that environment and everything else that goes with it. Um, but I think I, the way I perceive 
football to operate is that whether you consider it two different paradigms or a continuum with two ends is moving between a recruitment-based model and a development-based model being being slightly yeah differing differing perspectives um, and my perception is that first team operates much more on a recruitment-based model whereas in academy I'm much more bent towards the other end of the spectrum that I'm much more focused on a sort of a developmental mode of thinking about the way we're treating our athletes um, and I can well understand why you'd end up in a recruitment-based sort of paradigm in the first team setting because recruitment and then and then after that coaching are the two things that are going to have the biggest impact on on Saturday's result not strength and conditioning not whether you sprinted this week not whether you've done some squats but it's going to be it's going to be how well you've recruited to the way your team's trying to play and fit people to roles and utilize people effectively and then how that group are coached coherently so when those factors are so much bigger and your result is the primary thing that matters I can totally understand why you end up much more a recruitment end of that continuum rather than a player development end of that continuum. But when I'm down in our academy environment, I'm much more, I'm, I'm less thinking about whether we win at the weekend. We've got less opportunity to go around and start sort of regularly recruiting people to slots we want to fill so that we can win games more effectively. That's not necessarily our objective. We need to fill teams because we need to be able to field teams to play games. Yeah. And, and we want to win games because winning games is good for development. Mm. Like the coherence of the team that that develops and the buy-in of both the coaches and the players to what we're trying to do work-wise, all of those things are facilitated by winning. Um, but winning is, is a tool for me, if you like, in that regard, to try and support buy-in and, and the work I want to do rather than being the principal objective from my perspective of what of what I'm trying to achieve. And I'm much more focused on looking at the pool of players that we're, we've got and thinking about how they're, they're going to be developed. And I think that for me, that's the whole, I guess, a big chunk of the story that sets academy football apart from what first team football's trying to achieve is just is, 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 is tied into those things. Because if we relate that to like um, what has gone on in the game recently, you can think of a number of probably academy sides that have been very successful as academy sides. And then they go into a first team environment and arguably not as successful as individuals. So that's where it becomes quite real, doesn't it? Because, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't focus on result because like you said, it can be used as, I like how you said that it can be, uses like a buying tool um, because essentially we, we all want to win, but there's a bigger picture, yeah. isn't there, involving working with players of that, those sort of age groups? Yeah. And, and I, if, if I reflect, like we've had some good success um, since I've been at the club, particularly radiating out sort of from the 18th age group, which is probably where we were able to implement the most change early on partly because that group was just ripe for it at that time, partly because that group of that age of scholars coming in for the first time into a, in, into a programme full time at that age of sort of 16, 17, 
those players are hungry for something new, for something professional, for progress. They're at a ripe age in terms of being, being able to influence their behaviour. And if you can get a bit of momentum with, with that sort of age group of cohort, it's really easy to see a real sort of cohort-wide yeah. evolution. And definitely um, at, that, at that age group for the 18s, uh, we've, we've seen that happen. But when I think about where our success has come from, so our 18s group have been sort of top end of the league for the last two seasons for the South Division. Um, a lot of the success has happened because of really key players mm. in that group. And for, for, for all of the squad that's in place, for all of the good work that we think we're doing from a strength and conditioning perspective, and the types of attitudes and work ethics we think we're developing in the squad and the level of independence we're seeing in those players and professionalism we're seeing in those players. You regularly can still see situations where if you, if you pull some key recruitment cases out of that setting, suddenly it becomes much, much harder for you to get the regular winning outcomes that you're getting and you realise how fragile how fragile that, that whole thing is and how often dependent it is on key key players in key positions enabling you to have some of the successes you're having yeah um, i think it's often it's really easy to get carried away with thinking you're having really positive effects and you're doing a great job and over oversell the importance that your role has on what outcomes you're actually seeing on the grass yeah well um so yeah it all goes in both directions about programs being successful but players not emerging out of that program that end up being successful or vice versa programs being successful because of key players that are going to emerge out of that program or programs just not being very successful from a matching perspective at all but having some great players that end up yeah emerging and developing um and it yeah makes you realize how small you are i think how small a cog you are I think anyone that's worked in that academy's that academy system will know of players that will, if they've gone on to be successful, would have been successful regardless of what you did with them, yeah. wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. Like you could have done any sort of program and they they'd have gone on and done what they were going to do because they they had it, whatever it was, they had yeah. it. And and actually a lot of what I think I find myself being drawn to is more the extent to which we're able to help all the ones that are more around the margins. Yeah. It's, it's, enabling, it's enabling boys to get careers in a game who might have otherwise not quite made it, getting those over the line, or the ones that are going to get over the line, enabling them to play a tier higher. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, the, the ones that were going to really shine would have done so probably in spite of you. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's that's a great point because that's the majority as well, isn't it? Like you're hitting the majority of the squad there instead of the sort of um, the top whatever five percent of the the squad. Um, mm. So I think that yeah, that really is. It makes sense that we can affect everyone within that squad, can't we? Even if you even if it's a case of getting a player that might not go on to be professional, they might go into the semi-professional game, but they might do very well in the semi-professional game from the things yeah. that you could potentially put in place. Yeah. I, th I think as a non-footballer coming in, I really came in with like four, I think four targets in my head. So one was I, I did want to shift prescription. 
like not to oversell prescription as being able to deliver all your outcomes, but I wanted to do things that made the training better mm. and more effective. Um, I wanted to find better ways to try and start leveraging insights from data that's accrued because there's lots of data available in a football setting. And I wanted to try and stabilize and find insight from that, which I think I've really only nibbled at the edges of at the moment. Um, I really wanted to try and influence player behavior because I did see quite a bit. Well, my perception was there was quite varied levels of sort of buy-in and engagement with, with sort of growth development, working mm -hmm. hard, changing, changing themselves. Um, and then in football, the other one, I think, appeared important was to try and find ways to strive towards more consistency. So um, like Dan Kleber, who's a past colleague, uh, close friend, sort of consistency is one of his key words that he, that he harks back to. In a football setting, it's really easy to lose consistency fast. It's really easy for things to get embedded and practiced but then the foot's come off the pedal and they just drift over time because of the way the nature of the dynamic of some of the cohorts work. It's really easy to find excuses for not achieving consistency in the way you apply some of your stimulus because of the erraticism of a, of a football season. Um, but I think around that consistency thing, I think some of those barriers to consistency come from being a bit more towards a recruitment and a winning mindset rather than a individual player development mindset. And I think mm -hmm. you can strive for more consistency if you are drifting more towards the, the development end of the spectrum. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. I was going to say as well, we talked about when we're speaking about you being from a non-football background, how do you think football perceived you when you came into the club as well? Yeah. Definitely with quite a bit of suspicion. <laughs> uh, I think inevitably, like I wasn't exposed to it a lot, but I, but I imagine there to be quite a bit of why is he here sort of thing going mm. on, some of those sorts of conversations happening. Was that because, uh, do you think that was because of your background or what you were trying to implement or? Uh, yeah, I think background. Mm as much as anything else and people having sort of a yeah I mean everyone's got a view don't they so there's there's definitely going to be people that that don't think that's the right appointment um I think since coming in I definitely get labeled as the running guy so I running and running outside of football is a big part of what what I push within mm. our program i guess we can talk a little bit later about what what that is and why yeah um uh being obsessed with speed so i often get banter about various things about making them sprint again or being obsessed with how fast they are or how fast they're getting or any of those things which i think i just admit to probably being true mm. like, like that is a bias um being the science guy, I definitely get <laughs> poked at a little bit. Um, 
I use the word dose for the way I describe what we're delivering and that takes a bit of abuse. Because um, yeah, definitely like one of the th things for me is, well, what I've definitely seen in some conversation around football and in what I think some people seem to be doing is there's a fair bit of chasing things like GPS output, for example, that you're collecting data and we need to have sprint meters or we need to have high speed meters. And you end up seeing running around the place that is designed to accrue GPS rather than designed to deliver some sort of dose of physiological stress that's gonna elicit a change. Yeah. And the problem is that both those outcomes deliver a, some sort of, typically deliver some sort of GPS output. So at the point you look at GPS output, it might be quite difficult to differentiate between those two, that you can have two utterly different programs to accumulate that GPS. One which is entirely formed around clear, well-planned doses of physiological stress that are gonna impose some sort of change in an athlete versus meters that have been clocked in scattered ways or in volumes or doses that actually won't accumulate to any sort of real stimulus. Mm but the GPS comes out the same or vice versa. You can, you could vision, you know, you could plan in your mind lots of sessions that would give you huge physiological stress, but won't clock much at all on most of the typical GPS metrics that you're looking at. It won't clock any axels, D cells. It won't clock any high speed meters. It won't clock any sprint. It won't get high speed. But if you internally measure what's going on, for example, or if you've done what you're asking them to do and you know what that experience feels like and the type of stress it imposes, you know the sort of physiological stress you're imposing on someone at that point, but it doesn't show up yeah. in GPS metrics. So I think um, I got sidetracked there. I think oh, yeah, it, that was around dose. That was around the use of dose. Yeah, I think that, that comes back to that. Show, yeah that reason why we're doing stuff though, doesn't it? Rather than ticking boxes and, and just um, doing things for the sake of doing them. It's, it's questioning why. And we had a great conversation about this a couple of weeks ago, um, which is why I wanted to sort of touch on this, because I think this is really important. And where we where we've talked about you coming from a, a non-football background, I think this is where it pays off because you come in and you question, not in a bad way, in a, in a really good and progressive way. Like you question why we're doing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I got a little bit lucky coming into Fulham that I came into a coach with a coaching staff that were quite into working hard. Yeah. And as a start point, if you've got a coaching staff that want to see players working hard, you might not be 100% aligned on what working hard looks like or what it contains, but we are aligned on, yeah, on, on working hard as a start point. And if I think about some of the more sort of the older, more experienced coaches, they would have reflections back to running programming that went on around football back when they were training mm. um, or in earlier in their coaching careers. And my, as an example, like my perception of some of the work they would describe to me and some of what they perceive to be hardworking, hardworking training in football would be training that would deliver the sort of stimulus I would expect to see pushed towards somebody that was trying to train to be like a, a 5K 
sort of 5k slash 10k runner yeah so the the sorts of tempos and volumes they describe would nudge people in that direction and the it was the the difference i had as the guy coming in from outside was that hard work for me meant something slightly different and my model of what a footballer should be built around i always reflect back in my mind in terms of the physiology i reflect back to track and field because mm. it's the start point of my physiology that i understand the best so but i my my belief system would pull football to, to needing athletes who are more like 400 800 meter runners rather than 5k 10k runners because i do want people with the capacity to recover and go again so we do need some of that those fitness-based qualities to be able to achieve that but the game is getting faster and faster the rates at which people have to do work are getting higher and higher the density of of short periods of high intensity work are getting more and more aggressive so the sorts of athletes that can deliver on that and deliver really decisive impactful sort of movement outcomes on the field are the players with some of the power and strength qualities and speed qualities more like a 400 800 runner rather than a 510k runner um and it, and it took a little while there was definitely some suspicion about the running that we were doing early in our program. There wasn't enough volume. It wasn't volume driven enough. Um, but I think you, you get a bit lucky in, the, in that setting. Going back to some of our earlier discussion, you get a bit lucky in that setting. If the team starts winning. Yeah. It, it becomes much easier to, for, there to, for the buy-in to appear to align the thinking around oh, actually maybe some of this sort of higher intensity or this faster stuff does produce players that can do what we want them to do it does make players who are able to press and press again it does make players who are able to win races down to the corners it you know it creates the sort of athletes we want um but winning helps so then yeah that was i got a bit lucky with our timing that the 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 combination of the recruitment that they'd had and the coaching around it did take us to a winning team the first season I was in. And that, that did help a lot with getting buy-in from the coaches as to what we were trying to achieve. And then once the coaches are more bought in, the players often, particularly with the training on the grass, yeah. the players will follow suit if the coaches are bought into that, that it's working and that it's prioritised. Um, and then it's just the next step after that stuff on the grass is for that buy-in to shift off the grass to the work you're trying to do there as well. And then the whole program's rolling. Definitely. There's, there's big lessons in there for coaches because not everyone will go into a, into a team or a squad that will be successful, will they, in terms of results? So it's really important to consider that as being not the fact that you're not you're not doing things right but there's a lot of different factors that go into uh, football in general isn't there like it's not just the fact of us of, of putting together a nice speed program or um whatever it is there's a lot that goes into it so i think that's a really important point to make to coaches that are potentially in different programs different positions um and getting different results with the with the teams as well i think things were able to evolve more quickly because of that narrative that that was taking place i think if we'd had a team that was then struggling in that season um 
I don't know if I would have, because I don't know if I'm that well attuned, but I, I can see myself that I would have been in a situation where I would have been looking back in hindsight and going, oh, I shouldn't have pushed to change that. And I shouldn't have pushed yeah. to change that. I put, tried to change that too fast. I lost that person's buying because I tried to change that too fast. Like, but you de you, I definitely would have in mind, if I, if I run the thought experiment of that year not going so well, I definitely would be looking back saying, yeah, I think you would need to evolve things and try and make change more slowly to bring people with you if you're not in an environment where the results are really bringing everything along the way you'd want it to. That's just adapting, isn't it? But staying close to your key principles. Uh, that's not going away from your philosophy. That's just saying, is it ready for this right now? And if it's not, then say, like you, you mentioned, taking a side step before you take a side step to, um, to then implement them, don't you, at the right time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know it. I don't know if that's a particularly strong skill of mine. I think I'm a bit clumsy. Um, but in this instance, got lucky. So, <laughs> in, in this role now, though, John, because you've mentioned about obviously the team doing well in terms of results, the, the program, um, from what you're talking about, as, as the players have adapted to it well by the sounds of it. But what are some challenges that jump out for you? I think the probably the biggest one for me is is shifting the mindset of players and, and there's a because there's a, there's a lot of noise around young academy players particularly very capable or in inverted commas talented yeah academy players they've got at the young age they've got parents they've got agents they've got various noise coming in on social media they're being given money probably too early for their own well-being um and and that creeps you know that is escalating over time and creeping down the system over time that you just get more and more younger players getting more and more um and it and it's 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 not a, a dissimilar problem to what we see as we start to reach sort of like thinking about where the where the bottom's going to be in terms of how young how young we start recruiting yeah and and some clubs that are just trying to scoop up loads and loads of young kids at that very early age of the program it's like, like all, all these things create some of the, the wrong sort of developmental messages for players um and i think you're you're often trying to unwind a lot of that work to be able to get through to players and influence them in a way that you want them to to learn to manage themselves that the way you think is of best is is of you know best outcome for them in the long term um but so i think my probably my biggest priority is trying to have conversations with the players that ensure they feel heard because they want to feel like someone's paying attention to the way they see the world and what they think is important to them. Um, so definitely trying to like talk to my staff and also for me to be having those sorts of conversations, to be curious about players, to understand how they view things. Um, and then that gives us an opportunity to educate and persuade them 
once they're feeling heard, they're more willing to more willing to listen. Um, so some of the things that I'm often en end up drifting towards conversations with them about, for example, are them having a willingness to look at themselves as a whole. So what, what I see as quite common are players who have a view of themselves as their superpower. And I'm well on board with the idea of superpowers and that your superpower as a player is the thing that's going to get you noticed. It is the thing that's going to get you selected on Saturday. It is the thing that's potentially going to make or break whether you have a career or the level you have a career at is what your superpower is. Just a very quick update on our online community because depending when you're listening to the podcast, we have uploaded our latest webinar that we've run in association with Physique Management and the latest webinar is titled My Journey into the Professional Game and it is with sports scientist Evie Casagrande. So Evie's someone that's been on the podcast three times before, puts out loads of incredible content but it was great to have her on a webinar. We touched on loads of different things on the webinar. So we spoke about creating career opportunities. We spoke about some of the challenges that she faced. We opened up a discussion around um, challenges females face in the industry as well that males potentially don't. Um, we spoke about building confidence as a coach. We spoke about advice for young coaches and we asked Evie the question about advice for herself if she could go back as well the importance of, me uh, of mentors. We spoke about absolutely loads in this one. And I know there's some great questions on the webinar as well from some of the people that were tuned in live. But you can go back and watch this webinar on our online community. So we've added it to the large number of webinars we've now got on the community. So if, you, if you're already a member of the community, just log in at footballfitfed.com, click this community tab and sign in there. And it's available in the video library. If you're not already a member, go and check out the community because you can get one month free by going to footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab, sign up there, go through the full sign up process and that will give you one month free on the community. You can check out all the amazing content on there because Evie's is one of loads of webinars we've got and also um, some of our meeting presentations from our networking events that we run across the UK. The, those presentations are all also available on there, um, so you can go and check those out too. So just go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab. If you're not already a member, sign up there for the free month and go and check it out. Here's part two of the podcast with John Goodwin. But when you get to the point where you see the superpower as what you are, mm. and therefore that starts to inhibit your ability to look at the rest of yourself and the rest of your game, and say, well, what else am I doing to build myself around that superpower? I don't just want to be that superpower. I want to be a football player who doesn't have major gaps, who doesn't have huge holes, who isn't really restricted or limited in other ways, that then supplements or supports that superpower to, for me to be able to utilise it effectively. Um, and, and you have players that compare themselves to a Messi I'm like, but you're not messy. Mm. <laughs> you're good, mm. but you're not messy. Mm. And there's, depending on what level of football you're going to play at, there's going to be varying degrees to which a manager is going to be willing to accommodate having to make his team do things around you to enable you 
to be selected and utilize your superpower. If they're plugging gaps around you or trying to fill in the rest of what the team has to do, you need to be exceptional to be able to do that. Um, and in most cases, actually what you need to turn up with is a great superpower that is very obvious and visible and has been well-tuned, but no major gaps or lim limiting your major gaps uh, in other places. And I think that along with that, then you get players who also don't recognize what, what general hard work and a background of conditioning is gonna do for their ability to recover for games and come back and train hard again um, for the long-term risk of them becoming injured. And they almost see it as a bit of a zero sum game. It's like, well, if I do some of these other things that you're telling me to do, John, I'm not gonna be able to do this thing that's maximizing my superpower. Um, whereas really it's often not, it's not a zero sum game. We mm. can get more of this while still maximizing this. And particularly if you keep just focusing on this, you're just in an endless sort of process of diminishing return that that's gonna to top out. And actually your superpower will top out earlier if you don't develop some of these other things around it because of the way you're able to either train harder at this superpower or the way you're able to capitalize on that superpower because it starts to get limited by other things, other things around you. So yeah. I really want players to see yeah, what are, you, what are you doing across your whole self um, to try and improve yourself? So definitely that's, that's, that's one. I think some of the conversations we have with players, you look for what's the right way to be? What's the right way I need to encourage players to behave? And I definitely have a bent towards players being conscientious and hardworking. Um, but that isn't always the right outcome actually for shifting every person. That's a bit of my bias. And I can think of players that actually the right conversation is that actually this player over here is exceptional at most, most of what they do, but doesn't really have a willingness to grind mm -hmm. enough. And there's situations where you need to be yeah, willing to just push things a bit harder, be a bit more uncomfortable and grind a bit more. Whereas I've got other players who just... Uh, have, have unbelievable work ethic and just want to grind and grind and grind, but they'll run themselves into the ground and never really be able to achieve what they should be achieving. Got players who are exceptionally gifted, maybe able to express force really effectively. The problem is I can't get them to behave in a manner just that's consistent. And the problem is when you're not consistent, you then have spikes and troughs in the things that you do. And every time you come out of a trough and spike again, because suddenly you're feeling motivated or someone said something to you and you believe them and now you work hard for three days again, or you've been dodging your Nordics in the gym for the last two weeks. And then somebody captures you and makes you just five minutes think that it's sensible to do them. And then you do them and you're sore surprisingly the next day. And now you don't do them again for two weeks because last time we did them, you were sore. Like you've got all these different messages that players need to hear. And you only really get that when you start to unpick, unpick their behavior, unpick their worldview, get to know them much better and work out 
what's the right conversation to be having what's the right message to be delivering to nudge their behavior in the thing that's hopefully going to give them the best chance of having a, a stable program of work that's going to start consistently carrying them forward over time um, and i think around all of that being ready to give them a little bit of what they want so if you if you you know if you are hearing them if you're listening being be willing to give them a little bit of what they want which might not always be the first choice of what you want um, uh, and finding ways to give them choices because they want to feel like things are geared and designed around them and that they have some control over their journey so yeah finding ways to like in an authentic way give them choice that's that's meaningful and opportunity to sort of select their path rather than badgering them or forcing them down a route that you think is right um i'm trying to think this is all conversations in my head now just things coming to me i was going to say on that john because I completely agree with that. Like, I think that's that's the real value in coaching, but more specifically, like coaching at the academy level because you're preparing them for what's ahead. But how do you find that practically? Because obviously you've got a squad or, or a number of squads of players that you're working with. Um, but getting into those individuals, you've got a lot of individuals that you're having to cater for and then a lot of people that you're having to learn about, a lot of different personalities, a lot of different superpowers, like you just said about. Yeah. Like, what? there might not be a specific answer to this, but what's your approach to dealing with such a large number of people and trying to get this individual work into them? Um, I think we actually get quite a lot of time around the players where they drift, drift past us. Um, like if I, if I think about a typical morning, players will normally get in or they'll be in and hovering around the gym 15 minutes, most of them before they're due to be in. And then they're gonna be in the gym with us for 30 minutes before we head out to the grass. So that's a 45 minute window where we're likely to see them hovering around and certainly in the first 20 or 30 of those minutes, they're either not specifically in a time where they've got anything priority to be doing, or they're, they're drifting around some of, their, some of their own activities. So I think if, if, if you just called that 20 minutes, and then you've got that four or five days a week, just that one window, um, You've actually got quite a bit of time just to be getting regular drop-ins with a lot of players fairly fairly well and then you're trying to work out i guess which ones actually need to then have a deeper dive because a lot of them aren't necessarily not straightforward lots of lots of them some of them are already quite well bought into what you want to achieve um but yeah, quite, quite often there might only be out, out of, say, 15 players that you're trying to have those evolving conversations with. There might only be three or four that, that I would say I might be prioritising at any point in time. That I'm trying to get a deeper dive and really work out where things are at for them and move them to somewhere different. And it might be that for a month, I've got some back and forth 
particularly focused around those three or four players and there's other players that I'm just touching base with and after that month I think we've moved things a little bit to a better place and then I move move to somebody else in the program because the other thing is you're like you're not going to create all these changes in in the space of one chat yeah or in the space of one week or one month you've got players hovering around you particularly in academy setting it's again another one why it's often easier than higher levels of football is that you've often got some periods of some longer periods of time that you're going to be able to spend with players to evolve the way they see the world um, and the way they see what you're asking them to do so I don't yeah I don't necessarily really see any challenge in making the space to have those conversations because I can normally over the course of say three days I could have had at least sort of a five, five, 10 minute chat with pretty much everyone in a group. Cause I, you know, you have some other windows apart from that morning slot in yeah. the day where you've got time. Um, like, yeah. And if I'm trying to nudge things along with little pockets of conversation, that doesn't become hard to do. And some of the nice outcomes we've got, I don't know really what's common in other settings but we've got players that spend quite a bit of time coming back in the gym at the end of the day. We've got quite a large number of players who will often be hovering around doing extra work um, later on through the day. And you actually get quite a bit of time hovering around the gym environment where they want to stop and have a conversation. This player is really interested in understanding more about the foot and how they can get their foot better conditioned. And mm -hmm. this other player over here is really interested in fascia. They've read something about fascia in sort of an A-level they're doing or a, um, like you, you get players that want to have some real deeper dives around around particular topics and some of that stuff just becomes infectious because if there's lots of people around the gym environment you end up not having that conversation with one you haven't having that conversation with four or, or they've all watched game changers and there's conversations about sort of veganism and nutrition and yeah. whatever it is there's, there's things where you end up these conversations drift fairly naturally into our environment and it's the bit that's really important in trying to have conversations where people feel heard is that those conversations need to be authentic so if you're trying to force force conversations into environments then like people just get a bit everything gets a bit stilted and doesn't really get you get you where you need to get to so um yeah, I don't know if, if we're lucky, but it's, it doesn't seem, that bit of it doesn't seem a challenge to me in our environment at Fulham. It seems straightforward. Yeah, I, th I think that just across the board is just highlighting the fact that those opportunities are there. They just have to be taken, don't they? In terms of the contact time with the players, they have to be utilised in the right way because they could easily be ignored, couldn't they? They could, they could be time that you just go and do something else or... Um, fill it with something else like but you're not and I think that's that's the difference and there's probably if some coaches are really um, honest with themselves there's probably times where they could utilize time a little bit better with the players and, and start up some of these conversations that are really beneficial it's very easy to be busy yeah and I'm I am definitely guilty of being busy um but I, I'm just really 
I guess the bit that's the bit that is authentic to me is that I just love talking shop, mm. basically. Um, probably my my but the weaker aspect of my sort of conversation and the engagement I have with players is that I I probably don't touch on on their wider life enough. I think that's probably a, a failing in the way I engage with athletes. Mm. But but I do love talking shop, and I think that can get that can become infectious for people in the right setting. And that, and I find a lot of players really willing to engage when you're genuinely invested and they feel like you're genuinely invested in what their needs are. Um, like, yeah, they often want to know more. Although loads of them do just want a magic pill. Yeah. That's quite a common question. Yeah. John, I really, John, I really want... I really want to get this outcome. What exercise can I do? <laughs> so looking for yeah, the exercise that's going to fix them in this way and trying to get them just to take a step back and go, have you actually looked at the whole program that's been put in front of you here? Mm. Like this bit of it will do this for you. This bit of it will do this for you. This bit of it will do this for you. And the thing that you're asking me for is actually made up of some long-term changes that are going to come out of all of these aspects of the work that we're doing so we don't need a magic pill at the moment we need just consistent stable investment in you doing the work across these different things and we will see some of those changes um and we've had some yeah some really nice some really nice stories of some individual players who've really sort of bought into some ongoing stable work and really constructed themselves into a different athlete that they weren't and they've sustained it long enough over the three months or the six months, or the nine months that it took to create a really substantial change. And they've stuck at it and, and seen something real evolve. And again, a, a little bit of that can become infectious because then you've potentially got someone who's really bought into the, what they can achieve through the work, really bought into the program. And that starts to feed into other players in the group because you're not having the conversation anymore they're having the conversation on your behalf. Yeah. You've, yeah. You've sold that. You've sold that, that in via them. Definitely. No, I think that that's a, another great point. Um, I was just looking at my notes then, John, and I was going to move it on to the, the quick fire stuff that we do at the end of the podcast, but I just have one final thing that I think will be really mm. interesting. It's a bit of a shift in gears, um, mm. but around speed training, and yeah. we spoke about this again a few weeks ago, and I know you've covered it a little bit, but I think it'd be good to sort of go into it in a little bit more detail about any time that we have available for, because we, we speak about it a lot, especially in academy football. We've got to utilize the time that we have available. It might be within a warm up or whenever it is, we've got to really utilize the time. In regards to speed training, that time that we have avail available, where do you think we need to focus our, our work? Mm. I mean, on the warm-up that you just mentioned, we're, at, we're actually, as, as it fits with the way I see training functioning, we're actually drifting away from that. We're actually moving towards a process of giving more of that time back. Mm. Um, partly because if, if, I, if I think about some of the more general outcomes of what a warm-up on the grass is designed to achieve. 
And I do that coming off the back that we've already been in the gym doing some loading work, some activation-based work, mobility work in the morning that's gone you know, in the gym already before they're coming out onto the grass. So I think about some of the general things that are happening in that warm-up. And also some of the things we tend to start to deliver. So for example, people might get into some of their agility things or stuff like that at the back end of warm-ups. Um, a lot of that work is best done in context and is actually better time better utilized with the football coaches rather than rather than with us so i think for me the only time i want to come out of football i want, I want players in football as much as we can possibly get it and the only time i want them out of football is if like the sports scientist strength conditioning coach is delivering something with the players which is substantially different to what football is is capable of delivering so actually even some of my pet things that i like to deliver like i like to deliver agility and agility progressions but actually in a football setting like the, the context the context i create in any of the sort of practices i would do as, as an inverted commas agility coach is way less useful than some of the real context they're exposed to when they've got yeah multiple players around them real decisions being made that are real football decisions and, and my push is just to try and give more, more and more of our time back to enable the players to practice those things with the football coaches maybe with a voice in their ear from us but not necessarily with, with us us driving the content of a practice um, so then what, one of the things, speed, your question being around speed, one of the things that definitely for me is not very effectively delivered in football is either max velocity development or, and, and really high intensity, real max, genuine maximal axel type stuff and possibly decel stuff. And then really high intensity anaerobic work. So the sort of work that actually you can't do it in football because you can't continue to control a ball at your feet effectively when you're in the level of the state of fatigue that we're going to drive you into um, in, in terms of anaerobic stress. So, so, so normally what I'm trying to get to is that we'll only come out of, out of and then obviously strength is the other one and that, and that, and that drift to the gym, which yeah. we've got some real specific contextual strength, which giving more time back to football and designing particular football practices can give you, but then, yeah, potentially moving barbells or anything else in the gym is, 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 is where a lot of that's gonna come. So then in, in terms of developing speed, the highest priority for me is just that we run fast on a regular basis. And we run fast normally with our groups now, at least twice, maybe even three times across the across the course of the week so we'll normally have a day every week where there's some genuine out and out sprints normally ran as races um, and that's normally where we'll pick up our highest sort of the cohort wide highest speeds of the week and in terms of, of of tracking people over time we don't really test so we don't really use any any speed testing but we do track all of our variables on a regular basis from training be it in the gym or 
out on the grass. So we, we monitor what we're getting on a regular basis in terms of performance outcomes. And that race day, which is moderately well controlled in terms of the conditions it's carried out under and, uh, and what we expect to see, then that, that tends to be where we monitor the speed outcomes we're getting. And then we'll normally have fast running again on whatever the day of the week is that we end up delivering some high intensity anaerobic dose. Normally during that anaerobic dose, they're probably going to get over, over 85% of max velocity uh, during whatever that running is typically. And then often either on the same day or another day, there'll be another dose where we specifically try and hit just some 90% reps where they're trying to run fast, but stay relaxed and try and find the rhythm and the timing that goes with fast, relaxed running. And we'll use live GPS in those running sessions to try and make sure they're up approaching the sorts of speeds we want, but feeling like they're not sprinting flat out. This, this can come a bit more easily. And actually, without any real technical intervention, I think we've had some quite good success in seeing a lot of the players modify and evolve and change how they run just from practicing, just being left to practice running fast, mm. reasonably fast on a regular basis. Because um, said, I've said sort of in a previous chat I had on Rob Pacey, with Rob Pacey, like one, one of the things I do see are a lot of embedded movement issues that come from playing a lot of a lot of football with the ball at your feet and moving in tight spaces um, and moving around in tight areas, which tends to breed effective limb movement strategies that are suited to that type of stop start agility and ball control and ball striking. But some of those movement strategies, those patterns of moving your limbs aren't well suited when you want to open out and run at high speed um, but I think we've we've seen lots of players not lose those abilities but just add to their toolbox a better ability to fold a limb effectively and cycle a leg in a more effective way that enables them to run at, at higher speeds just from practicing just from practicing running fast and not really having to intervene a whole lot more than that um, there's a little bit of it for me that comes in the conversations so there's, there's definitely conscious mindsets that players get into that they, they've thought cognitively about how they think you're supposed to run fast. And those things breed certain movement patterns, particularly for, for me, what, I, what I've seen, some of the overstriding patterns we see are things that players actively think are things they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And just enabling them to realize those aren't necessarily things that, that you should be doing frees them up just to to evolve how they run a little bit um and then and then there's some of the things around either physical qualities or motor control that we chase so so my model of sprinting the way i view an athlete in my mind is as like a, an actuated spring a spring with a motor at the top a powered spring so the spring being predominantly driven by what your foot and your Achilles and your calf and ankle as a, as a, as a unit is able to deliver you um, a little bit with the stuff higher up the chain, but predominantly down that end of the chain. 
And then the motor that drives that being predominantly your hip extensors, glutes, hamstrings, and some of those structures there. And then I'm, I'm trying to work out with athletes to what extent the balance of those qualities is influencing the way they choose to run at the moment. And we've had a, a few nice success stories. One in particular that comes to mind who was really heavily dominant through hip extensors was a real glutey hippie runner who would sit low. He'd use a really flat foot on the floor. He would heel strike when he sprinted, um, be quite tipped forward in the trunk a lot of the time. So he's just basically relying on what his hip can deliver all of the time. And then his focus on an extended period was to try and transform what his foot, calf, ankle was able to deliver. He, you know, basic things like normal strength based program, heavy rhythmic program, plyometric program, skipping content, like gradually introduced and ramped up the amount of foot and ankle work he was doing across the week tracking some of what his foot and ankle was able to deliver so we we do pogos every week in training yeah so we get pogo numbers off the four stacks every week for them and just watching his his sort of stiffness and rsi capabilities at the ankle evolve over time and then again without any technical intervention for him at all he's really shifted in terms of being able to, to shift his trunk position slightly more upright particularly when he opens out into high velocity sprinting He's naturally found a better front side position, slightly higher knee position on the front side than he was able to before. He now strikes at the ground with the foot rather than shuffles over a flat foot. And all those things evolved pre predominantly for him because we gave him the physical, the structural capacity and then just practiced running fast. Yeah. And he's just evolved that pattern. And that I, I, I would say that pattern for him like where have we got to if he like we have wickets set up in the gym it's part of their pre-act in the morning so they do wicket runs so when he does wicket runs he's utterly a different athlete when we sprint he's partially changed how he runs transferred it onto the grass and then when we we're in football we're seeing glimpses of it from time to time like that's the the trickle of what he's been able to do as, as we go down. He's really happy because we're able to see things in that middle, okay, over wickets and during sprint races, we can see a change. I'm getting more and more happy that the more we get the opportunity or the time to see some of that emerge more naturally in a, in a competitive environment when he's on the grass. Um, but he's definitely, what things have we seen on the grass? We've definitely seen him, uh, quicker when he's through foot and knee rather than hip like in some of his early steps for acceleration he's getting beat a lot less in scenarios where he's coming out of those situations so those things are transferring occasionally when we see him sprint we see him hit some better shapes so it's just it's just that 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 trickle that trickle gradually happening um i'm trying to think of other things that are on there early hip flexor activity is another one that's priority for me so early hip flexor switching on during sprinting along with a limb that folds effectively and for me the two things that help you recover and strike at the ground for the next step and probably the only place I really cue early hip flexor activity are either in our wicket runs because mm. for me the wicket runs constrain your stride length 
that gives you permission to stop pushing off, which is what a lot of the overstriding stuff is. And yeah. once you're not thinking about pushing off so much, your hip flexors will naturally come on earlier and it enables you to recover the limb a bit more effectively. So the wickets that we do in the gym during morning pre-act are important for me for that. And I'm normally pushing them to try and do those a bit more purposefully because you get players who are just slack and lazy and it doesn't do anything through the wickets. Um, and then we do a bit of things like uh, almost like a bit boshy style switch patterns onto boxes. But again, that's another one where you're trying to encourage them to have the knee on the recovery leg up at, at before or at the same time as the leg going down hits the floor. So then you're just trying to cue that early hip flexor rather than hit and then lift your knee. Mm. Trying to get the switch to happen. So th those sorts of timing things. Um, and then anything that's focused around sort of rhythm and timing of relaxation patterns. So occasionally we'll get into a little bit of like a skip drill patterns on the grass. Not, not particularly often at the moment, but from time to time we'll get into a bit of that. Actually last year I, had a, I did have more time and we did have a regular slot in the week where we were able to get half an hour of doing technical run, run, technical run drilling. And some of that was was useful, um, but this season, partly because of the COVID schedule, it's just been less less opportunity for us to be able to do a bit of that track stuff. Um, yeah, I think that 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 timing and relaxation, I think for me, is the the one of the priorities that come from runs at ninety percent, and also the anaerobic runs where we're going for longer distances but fast. Yeah opportunity to cycle where you're not quite straining at the straining at the limits of what you're able to do which they do a little bit on race day um you know all those things get you into a pattern of recovering a limb more effectively uh, and enabling them to gradually improve their running mechanics and their, their sprint ability yeah so that, that, that gives a great insight and i think like we we go back to what we're talking about in terms of that time available i think that gives a really good um perspective for coaches to for things to prioritize and and some of the practical um stuff that you guys are doing as well so thank you for going into detail on that i appreciate it um we'll go move on to the, the some of the quick fire stuff at the end john so i always start with asking um who were some of the your biggest influences or the biggest influences on your career so far? Yeah. Uh, so thinking thinking back, I would I would mention uh, a hammer coach, hammer discus coach called Alan Stark, who was a lecturer at St Mary's. Partly because he he was the person who I was just uh, randomly sort of working with the an athlete in the university athletics team, doing a bit of coaching, helping with the university program. And it was him that on graduation pulled me in and said, oh, you could do this postgraduate thing and lecture some biomechanics and lecture some anatomy and start a PhD. And it was him that started me on that whole journey. So I'm definitely grateful for him as a, he was a pivot point for me. Um, Dan Clever, who I mentioned earlier, who I spent, I think around a decade working with at St Mary's and he just made me cleverer so he's just the sort of person that we have slightly different world views to each other mm. 
So you'd regularly have conversations where there are some different perspectives and he's much smarter than me in lots of areas of intelligence. So that constant challenge, definitely I got smarter when I was spending time with him. Uh, the Roy Hedy, who pulled me out to Saudi. Yeah. Uh, that was a life-changing moment and he was a big influence to me on the time when I was there. But actually thinking about this question, I really feel like it's like it's everyday people around me that really, really have so much influence when I think about what things I'm reflecting on, the things that I'm changing every day. So if I think like Jack Grinstead, who was our 23s coach, who went up to first team recently, like just his level of uh, sort of logistics and awareness and organization really challenged me because it's a toolbox that I'm just terrible at. And definitely that, like that, that influenced me. Dave, our coach with the 18s, have really good deep conversations with and he's got toolbox and knowledge that's really different to mine. So that's really valuable. Laura, our physio, Michael and Liam, our physios in our team, like those guys, like always asking questions and challenging and like those things just really valuable to keep us moving definitely the players I can think of like quite a lot of players that all of those conversations I've been talking about the influence goes in the other direction as well and the process of me trying to listen properly has definitely shifted my views on things when I spend time around those players and their conversations. And I've definitely learned stuff from them. So I think it's like loads of people. Yeah, brilliant. And then what would you say is your biggest strength as a practitioner? Uh, I'm very, very, very reflective, which obviously has some upside, um, but to the point of being a bit, neurotic and obsessive which definitely is a down a downside um to that one i love training and i think some of that can be infectious a lot of the time yeah. so that's been valuable to me in my coaching career um but all the things i can think of just have real real up and up and downsides so i think often some things that I, at one point in my life i've considered them strengths I've then hit another point in my life and gone, oh, yeah, mm. I this one. Gone back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> and then I always ask about CPD as well, John. So um, yeah. by CPD, I could obviously be like courses and things like that, which we've not probably not been able to do too much of apart from online learning. Um, but webinars, yeah. podcasts, is there anything that sort of springs out that you've done recently that you've took a lot from? Uh, I'm not actually a big workshop person. It tends, yeah, I, t- I tend not to do a lot of those things. And I tend not, normally when I go to conferences and workshops, what they do do is just spike, switch my brain on. I'm away from work. They switch my brain on and I spend the weekend brainstorming and making notes. So I end up being on those things, but I go back into my own head yeah. a little bit. But the, I think, some of the recent things that have really been helpful for me, like when Jack, who I mentioned, went up to the first team at Christmas, we had sort of a two, three month window where we were recruiting, where I went back with the under 23s full time. Um, that's just been a fantastic experience and, and woken me up again, just being able to be with a group 
fully immersed with a group again for a little spell. That's that's been great. Um, and I would I guess hark back to what I was saying about all the conversations. I, I really feel like those are the places where I develop and work stuff out and learn stuff is in the day-to-day to and fro's that I get to have with some of the great people around. So yeah, that's my one. Thrill. And then just finally, mate, I always ask on the end of it, what do you think some of the, or one of the most important traits to have for a coach is, but also for a player? So when, when you're thinking about some of the players that you've had the probably the biggest impact with, um, are there some common traits that you see with those players, but then for coaches as well? Mm-hmm. I think for coaches, I think it depends a little bit what success means for you. I think it's really different if you if you see success as the way in which you're able to influence people and have impact versus you see success as the steps you're able to make in your career and the job titles you're able to accumulate. Yeah. I think that leaves quite different things. And I'm more inclined, my personal bias towards the former about being interested and engaged with people who are all about the impact that they're having in the environment they're in. Often that leads to career success, but it doesn't always lead to career success. So you often find great people in places where, yeah, they haven't necessarily career progressed, but they're fantastic. But but I see qualities like being authentic, open, and really interested in the stuff that you're doing as like some of the highest priorities to to be productive in in that sort of setting. Um, and then again, my biases for players is that I like, I like players who are, and I like edging players towards being like more conscientious, diligent, hardworking, but that's not, not always the case. And, and people a little bit try and polarize some of what you see. So you get players who are really diligent and conscientious, players who are not, players who are really talented and players who are not. Um, and I, I've heard quite a lot of people try and pigeonhole those pairings that the, the ones who are diligent and hardworking are often the ones who are not that talented mm. and vice versa. The ones who are talented are often the ones who are not that, not as diligent and hardworking. And I actually, I'm not, I'm not really sure that's the case. I think it's more something like you've just got a distribution of sort of levels of diligence and hardworking and conscientiousness and all those things and you've got a distribution obviously of how physically gifted or how readily they adapt or what their resting level of performance is when they're not that well trained or how fast they progress when they do train hard you've got all these different things on that on that side of the equation and I think you've just got a totally random distribution across those outcomes but then you just get people's confirmation bias that makes them see the ones they want to see yeah. So they'll notice the untalented player who's working really hard and never makes it. And they'll <laughs> notice the really talented player who's a lazy bum. But I've, if, I, if, if I block up my like five most talented players, talented in inverted commas, whatever you perceive that to be, hmm. in our academy at the moment, you've got a complete mix of conscientiousness uh, or not. Um, and the same at the other end, like, so I think I would always edge towards people being what they are, 
but trying to nudge them in a slightly more productive direction. So you're not trying to change who somebody is, but you're trying to sort of around the edges, just mold them into something around what they are, which hopefully will be more productive for them in the long yeah. term. Brilliant. Mate, this was really, really enjoyable. I took absolutely loads from that, um, which I'm glad because the conversation we had a few weeks ago, I did, and I wanted to try and get it, that we covered all the similar sort of stuff on the podcast, which I think we've done. So big thank you for coming on and giving up your time. Um, If anyone's got questions, they want to reach out, um, they want to just follow you and your work, where's the best, where would you direct them? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter. Johnny Mechanic or Johnny underscore Mechanic or something like that. Uh, I don't tweet very much, really. I'm not really particularly big on, on social media, um, but I am I, I am on there occasionally. I'm on LinkedIn, so people can get me on there. Just John yeah. Goodwin. And, yeah, I'm always happy for people to drop me an email. It's just jgoodwin at fulhamfc.com. Perfect. Well, again, big thanks for coming on, mate. Really appreciate you giving up your time. And um, we'll stay in touch and best of luck for the rest of the season. Thank you. Now, as you can probably tell on the length of this podcast, I really enjoyed talking to John. And to be honest, I could have I could have kept him on for even longer as well, because I think there was loads of things that we spoke about, but also loads of other things we could have gone into too. So I hope you took loads from this podcast. Um, I really enjoyed getting him on. I think it's really interesting to touch on some of the factors that we spoke about, especially someone that's not been in football long-term and that's been involved in other sports. Um, I think the discussion around recruitment versus development is really interesting. Um, We spoke about winning being a buying tool. So obviously, it's great to be winning in the academy setting because everyone wants to win. We want to win games, but it's, it's kind of a buying tool for your methodologies as well at that level. He spoke about shifting player mindsets in terms of challenges as well. And we touched on superpowers, how to manage players' superpowers and the fact that, and we have touched on this before and I know John reached out um, after we recorded the podcast and said it linked in really well with the previous podcast with Connor Washington, which I really agree with, where he spoke about um, the strengths of a player and sort of looking to work on things that could that could either keep players on the pitch um, or work on things that aren't so strong and work on some weaknesses as well. And then the other interesting thing I thought, and, I, and this is what I questioned John on, was making the most of players what he called drifting so where players are ever available to chat to, this is, these are the times that we really need to tap into because these are the times we can really make an impact with players as well. And I think back to the episode with Jake Simpson on this one as well because he spoke about getting sessions set up early to create that time to engage with players. And I think there's really something in that that you need to try and think within your practice, where can you become uh, either free up more time or become um, t- take advantage of the time available a little bit more throughout the day. Um, because there's definitely going to be time available that we, we not waste, but we could be spent doing other things. And I think it's really important to think about. So loads of great stuff in this one, I thought. And um, yeah, thank you very much to John for coming on the podcast and for everyone for listening and tuning into the podcast as well. Go and check John out. He said he's on Twitter at Johnny underscore mechanic and Johnny is spelled J-O-N-N-I-E underscore and then mechanic 
So go and give him a follow on Twitter and please reach out. Let me know what you took from the podcast. I've had a few people reaching out and sharing some recent shows, so I really appreciate that. And just finally, if you haven't already left an iTunes review, please head over and do that. But big thank you again for listening to the podcast and I'll speak to you again next week in episode 134.